Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Financial Freedom Show. My name is Rob Berger, and this is the live Q&A. For those in the chat, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me and see me. I've been uh, fighting a cold. It's not COVID. I've tested negative twice now. So hopefully I'll make it through at least two hours. We'll see. While um, someone, hopefully in the chat, is going to give me a thumbs up, I wanted to show you a couple of things to start the show off. A couple of questions, a couple of resources-ish. I got a thumbs up. Thanks, Tyler. By the way, I see the questions already in the chat. That's great. So the way it works, if you want me to discuss a topic, uh, just tag me in your comment so that I see it. I will do timestamps after the show. Uh, I'll try to get them done today. The last couple of weeks, it's been the next day. I'm going to try to get them done today. But I want to show you a couple of things before I get to the chat questions. This is the first thing. So I've, been, I've had this debate with a wealth manager at Fidelity. Seems like he's a nice guy. I've never met him in person, always talked on the phone. And we were debating actively managed funds versus index funds. And his view is that when it comes to sort of large U.S. Uh, companies, sort of, so think S&P 500 or whatever, index funds beat, beat actively managed funds. But for small companies, international, some bonds, it's not true. And I said, well, I said, uh, I, I certainly have read that uh, for other asset classes, actively managed funds do better compared to how they perform for, say, large U.S. companies. But that over, say, a 10-year period or longer, they really do still, the majority of them still underperform. Oh, no, no, no. I said, well, can you send me some research? So he sent me this page. You know, I have not talked about it yet. But I want to just show you something as you just, my point here is not to convince you that I'm right or, or, you know, or how you should invest, but more about how we should think through uh, these issues. And so this is a chart with different asset classes. You can see down here, like growth companies, diversified, international, worldwide, and they're, they're outperformance over a, a, over a period of time. And, and, and it shows you the different time periods down here. And one of the things you always have to ask is, all right, how did we pick these funds? Like out of what universe of funds? Because if you look here, we look at this right here. At Fidelity, 86% of our equity funds have beaten their benchmark over the manager's tenure. Well, I mean, that's amazing. And contrary to every study I've ever read about actively managed funds, how did they do it? Let me ask you a question. If I said, imagine we wanted to pick uh, the best football teams, NFL. And we said, you know what? Um, for all of the teams where the quarterback has been the same, they've had the same quarterback for at least seven years. I'm just picking seven years. Uh, they outperform the average team significantly. Well, that's kind of, you'd say, well, <laughs> I guess that's true, Rob. But of course, if the quarterback wasn't any good, they would have replaced him. So if we're only looking at teams where the quarterback hasn't changed, yeah, they're better than average. Well, keep that in mind. See this little asterisk right here? I had a job before law school as a buyer at ICI Pharmaceuticals. Anyone, if you're going up 95 from Maryland into Delaware, Maryland into Delaware on 95, you get into Delaware, on the right is this giant, ugly green building. That's where I used to work. It was called Stewart Pharmaceuticals. 
Then it was ICI Pharmaceuticals. I don't know. I was a buyer. And my boss, Mac, was his name? Walker McWilliams, called him Mac. He used to tell me about contracts. He said, Rob, the big words giveth and the small words taketh away. Well, that asterisk is a small word. That's, we got it. What is that little pesky asterisk doing there? What does that mean? Well, although not all fidelity equity funds are represented above, hmm, problem number one, 86% of fidelity equity funds managed by the same portfolio manager for at least five years are beating their benchmark. And guess what? For those funds where they weren't beating the benchmark, what'd they do to the manager? Ching, gone. It's just not a relevant data point, this whole chart. Sorry, not buying it. All right, that's the first thing. So you can see I'm fired up even with my cold. By the way, Fidelity has some good funds. I'm not, I mean, I think they have some great index funds. And I'm sure some of these, all of these, all of these actively managed funds, I'm sure some of them for three decades have probably been great. Now, whether they'll be great going forward, well, who knows, but yeah. So this really isn't a criticism of fidelity per se. It's just that you can't cherry pick the universe of funds you're going to look at and then claim victory. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, if I just pick the right investments that I've had in my lifetime, I'm crushing Warren Buffett. I just have to make sure I pick the right ones and ignore all the others. Okay. That's number one. Number two, I got an email and I, he asked me a bunch of questions. I want to cover a couple of them. This was from a, a viewer named Jay. One of them was Bill Bengen. So Bill Bengen, the father of the 4% rule, you know, Morningstar came out recently and said, forget 4%, it's 3.3%. And then Bengen responded to that. Morningstar interviewed him. And in fact, I can show you the interview. Hang on. It's right here. And if you just Google, let's see, here it is. Bill Bengen re revisiting safe withdrawal rates. You can check it out. And, um, but Jay was concerned that maybe Ben was sort of changing his approach. Uh, I've skimmed the interview. I don't think he's changing his approach on the 4% rule. So what happened was he came out with the 4% rule in 94, and it was based on just two asset classes, basically S&P 500 and intermediate term treasuries. Over the years, he's added some other asset classes, in particular small caps, and ratcheted the 4% up to maybe 4.5%. One of the things, though, that he does say in this interview that surprised me is that he's gone down to just 20% in equities. He thinks for most retirees, using the 4% rule is sort of just a rule of thumb. 50 to 60% equities is probably the sweet spot. That is a, a tad different. I mean, in his original paper, what he said was 50 to 75, and you want to get as close to 75 as you can. Um, and of course, you know, um, back then, interest rates were different. I don't, I don't know, but it's still it's close enough. But he's down to 20%. I don't get that. Um, one of the things that uh, I found that I want to show you, uh, and this is not for the faint of heart, but it was interesting to me. And actually, this comes back to the second question that Jay asked me. In my video on my, the performance of our investments in 2001, I pointed out that I'm about 83% stocks. And he was asking me, is that too rich you know, for me? Why 83? And, and it, it is. I'm, I'm going to be slowly trying to get that down without incurring any taxes. Um, and who knows, maybe the market will help me get that down real quick. Uh, the market can do that from time to time. Um, 
but I'm not too worried about it because I'm not really retired now. I mean, I feel retired. I get up and do whatever I want. Um, but the, you know, we're able to live off of the income my business generates. So from a financial perspective, we're not retired. Now, the business income could be can fluctuate. So who knows? You know, ask me in a month and maybe I'm all of a sudden retired because the business income has gone down. Um, but there's another aspect, and it actually gets me to this paper I want to show you, is that I think what matters a lot is what percentage of your, your investments you have to spend each year in retirement. It's one thing if you're at 4% or 5% or somewhere in that range, but we're not there. Even if we were living off of our assets completely and I had no income, we'd be around 2%, maybe 25 and that gives us a lot of flexibility on how we invest. Um, and by the way, that two, two and a half has got a lot of discretionary spending in it. You know, I mean, if we had to really buckle down and only spend what we needed to to survive, you know, we could, we could spend less. But in any event, I came across this paper. Now, this is not for the faint of heart. This was, uh, I think, MIT. Yeah, uh, produced this. These folks, these folks right here. And um, I'm just going to scroll down and just show you what you're in store for if you actually want to read this. Yeah, things like this. So I was an English major, and I'm pretty sure I don't think that's English right there. I don't know. Um, but basically, what this paper does is say what what should what should the asset allocation be um, over your life cycle and all this stuff. And one of the things that they concluded was that. They did it based on gr gross amount of your portfolio. So like, I think they had a, a cutoff of 4 million or more. Um, they actually said 90% stocks. And the, the theory behind it was when you have that much money, you can reduce your spending if you have to, you know, during a bad market or high inflation or, or whatever. Uh, I'm, not sure I, I, I'm not sure I see that. I mean, it seems to me it's not a question of how much money you have, at least not entirely. It's really a question of what percentage you're spending each year. If you have a million dollars, uh, but you only spend one and a half percent of it, to me, you've got all kinds of flexibility. But in any event, for those that can can you know handle it, uh, pour, I don't know, pour yourself a cup of coffee and read this paper. I have not, I've skimmed it, I haven't read it. I will probably go back to it. But um, in any event, you can just Google simple allocation rules and optimal portfolio choice over the life cycle. So there's that. Um, I think that was about it before I turn to your questions. Oh, he did ask me if I have my individual stocks in a Roth IRA. Mostly no, so I'm sad to say, but we don't have a whole lot of Roth. But I do have individual stocks in my Roth IRA. I put a couple of bank stocks in there. Um, I think that's it. All right. I covered his question. Here we go. Huh. Sorry. I was distracted. So... Uh, I did not, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing it, but I have no answer to your question. It's in Romania, divided taxation, I don't know if that's dividend taxation, level is 1%. Is it a good time to enter in value stocks? There are some nice prospects for bank and utility companies in my country. I have no earthly idea. Scott says, when analyzing individual stocks, what is the best metric? DE, I guess that's debt to equity. You can tell I don't use that one. PE, price to equity, or price to earnings, sorry. DE is probably debt to equity, I'm guessing. Maybe it's not, debt to earnings? Anyway, PE is price to earnings, earnings per share, price to book, or PEG. Um, to, to be honest, I don't really, 
rely a lot on any of those necessarily. Um, I'll tell you how I invested in banks a year ago, and, and you're probably going to be um, really disappointed <laughs> because it wasn't as if um, I had some elaborate analysis, some secret formula, some, you know, I, I didn't. The first thing I think about is the industry it's in, and, and this kind of goes, Scott, to your question, what are the metrics that analysts use for that particular industry, right? Because PE may or may not be all that useful, right? Um, with, with banks, one of the things they look at is book value, right? And that kind of makes sense given you know, it's a bank. And there were good banks trading below book value. Um, and I'll show you how you can find that. I guess you could calculate it yourself. I mean, a lot of sites will have it. I'm pretty sure I just went to Morningstar. Let me pull up. Uh, we'll pull up Bank of America. Let me see if I can find. They move things around on Morningstar. Yeah, here it is. What's well, on the homepage or the quote page? So I just you know typed in Bank of America in the search box. Um, and here's price to book, 161. Now, I don't know over what period that is, how up to date that is. I'm sure, well, sure, it's fairly up to date. Now, when I bought Bank of America, it was about trading to about half, or not quite half. It, what is it? It's 49 now. I bought it at roughly half that. Um, so when I bought it, the price to book was like 0.9, or I don't remember exactly, but it was under one. Now, now, the thing you have to keep in mind about all these metrics is that just because a metric looks attractive from a valuation perspective doesn't necessarily, so some stocks are cheap for a good reason, right? But, but my view, and this is, this is the, my favorite kind of investing with individual stocks, is to find a stock that I think is cheap for reasons that really have nothing to do with the company. In this case, bank stocks were just, were just cheap because you know, interest rates were so low. So if you think about a bank, this isn't true for all banks. You know, banks make money a lot of different ways. I mean, traditionally, you know, you you bring in money through deposits and other things, and you you know, at one rate, and you you lend it out at a higher rate. You you make the the net margin income, the difference, right? Well, with interest rates so low, net margin income was really low, and so these banks are getting hurt. And and let's be honest, you know, in in 2020, let's see, yeah, I bought Bank of America in October of 2020, and Wells Fargo in uh, January of 2021. We were talking about ARC, ARC and GameStop. I mean, who, <laughs> you, you know, who was talking about banks back then, right? I, I don't know. Not that I get my investing tips from media, but um, they just weren't, you know, it was the growth stocks. And what I concluded was these are really undervalued um, and, and they're solid companies. I don't think Bank of America is going to go out of business. And, you know, Wells Fargo had its own issues, but they'd replaced management. And, and, and they still have issues and they still have limits on the amount of assets they can have. Um, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's like 195, just under 2 trillion. I don't know what the number is, but they're limited. And, and my thinking on Wells Fargo was they were below book value too. In fact, let's just look them up real quick. Yeah, so they're still above uh, book value, 133. They were below uh, one when I bought them. But like take a JP Morgan, by the way, they're going to be much higher, I would assume. Maybe even over two. I don't know. Almost two, 195. Oops. But again, a great bank. It doesn't, you know, you can't just go on a metric. 
But the point is, um, with Wells Fargo, I thought, you know, eventually the Fed's going to lift, you know, the regulators are going to lift the restrictions on Wells Fargo. And, 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 and I think they'll get a boost um, when that happens. We'll see. But my, my theory was they're, they're, they're very reasonably priced and eventually rates will go up. And when they do, um, these kind of banks, not all banks will benefit the same, but these kind of banks, particularly Bank of America, should, you know, should, should uh, reap the benefits of that. And um, at the time, I figured, eh, probably five years. You know, now, I, I, you know, I've doubled the money, more or less, in a year. But, Scott, to your point, so in banks, I'm more interested in that. The PE matters, you know. Uh, peg, peg is interesting. That's PE divided by growth. The, the trouble with peg is you got to know growth, and that's just a guesstimate. <laughs> so, I mean, the truth of the matter is if you knew growth, you know, I'd tell you a lot with or without peg. Right. So um, that's kind of how that was how I did it with banks. And you, I know you're probably like, Rob, that that's kind of pathetic. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I don't know. It's kind of what I did with Apple in 2013. It's like we're cash cow. They were trading at 700. This was two, three splits ago. They had a, a bad quarter um, and they dropped like 395 a share. And it was just like, OK, this is pretty cheap. Okay. Let's see. Mar, is it Marv? Yeah, Marv. Can you discuss the various approaches that Vanguard has for defining Vanguard mutual fund basis? Well, I don't know specifically to Vanguard, um, and it's a it's a it's a great question. And, and and the short answer is probably off the top of my head, no. I can conceptually talk about it, um, and maybe do do some more work into Vanguard. And the the reason, by the way, that I'm not steeped in this information is uh, I just do an average. And and part of the reason is, is I trade so very little. I mean, most of my assets right now, only I only, I only have a one purchase anyway. And <laughs> they were all bought on the same day. Um, in fact, yeah, all of my mutual funds or ETFs, that are in a taxable account. I don't think I have any that weren't all, all the shares bought on one day. And I don't trade. Now, and, and even Apple. I've owned Apple for nine, 10 years, and I've bought it three times. So I have three trades. Well, there, there would have been some dividend reinvestment early on. So, um, But what I can show you, maybe this will help you, is this article. So just do Vanguard cost basis methods or cost basis, basis methods available at Vanguard. This is what I use. Whoops, didn't mean to click that link. Let me go back. So these are links so you can get more details. This is what I like about it. But again, if you don't trade much, I mean, I, any of the others wouldn't, wouldn't help me. You can, you can identify a specific lot, right? First in, first in, first out. So like the first one you bought, it's the first one you sell, right? Highest in, first out, I've not ever done that. Um, but this, as you can see here, you maximize your losses. Um, but you got to be careful with that, right? Because you couldn't, well, I don't know if you, you probably have to be careful with any of these. But in any event, that should answer all your questions. Um, good morning from Texas. Hello, Mike. Question. Could you talk about your thinking about how to decide to wait or take Social Security early or later if you're going to invest it at all? So great question. When I get to that age, and I'm not there yet, 
Thank you. I'm not even close, actually. I'm not even a baby boomer in any event. Um, I'll probably hire someone to do the analysis. You pay him a few hundred bucks. I don't, I, I, and I interviewed a, a social security expert, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. I don't even remember his name. I remember the interview. It was for the Dole Roller podcast. Um, or do some sort of online analysis. But my current thinking is just to wait until we're 70. You know, whether my wife would claim, there's different strategies you can use. But um, my approach is we, we won't need the money. Wait until 70. Uh, you know, each year you wait, you get a nice bump. I think it's 8%, but someone in the chat will correct me if that's wildly inaccurate. Um, but some view it waiting till 70 is sort of longevity insurance, if you will. You get, you, you know, you, your benefit goes up to, to the maximum and where you're really going to need it. This is art for us. You know, if you, if you live much longer than you expect. But every situation is different. First of all, some people just may need the money, you know, to survive, to live on. Um, um, as a general rule, I think the longer you can wait, generally the better. But there are all kinds of claiming strategies, some they did away with, but I have not mastered them. The thing to know, this is part of how I think about finance and money, is there are some things you want to know really well. And there are some things you just have to know that the issue is out there so that when, you, when, when, it, when time comes to deal with it, you can deal with it. That's how I treat Social Security and claiming strategies. I have not mastered them all, and I probably never will. I don't need to. I just know that there are different ways to claim Social Security, and that's particularly true with the spouse. And um, so that when, I, when, you know, when my wife uh, and I start getting closer to that age, um, then I can figure it out, probably by hiring someone and paying them a few hundred bucks to advise us. In my case, like today, if I had to confront it, I'd probably just use Mark Zorl, who I've talked about in the past, Plan Vision. I mean, he certainly could run the analysis uh, uh, for you, and he's very inexpensive. Um, by the way, did I skip one comment or I not gotten to it yet? There was one question about low-cost help. I don't think I've gotten to it yet. Frank, morning, Rob. I look forward to um, all week to these weekly discussions. Well, thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. Okay, Mike, I think I covered your Social Security question, although probably doesn't give you a whole lot of satisfaction. Oh, here we go from Ken. Are there any low-fee services you would recommend to someone who is in retirement but is unable or unwilling to manage their retirement portfolio on their own? So um, let me show you this. I'll make it a little bigger here if I can. So uh, a friend of mine, I, oh, I, I say a friend, I met him for the first time in October at a conference. His name is Cody, and he's the financial advisor at Measure Twice Financial. Uh, I don't think he's taking on new clients at the moment. Um, uh, but he listed some potential money managers. I don't know any of these people, right? Uh, but if you, um, well, actually, for those in the chat, I can't do that. If you, uh, let's see, how did I get to this? So if you go to Measure Twice, which is measuretwicefinancial.com, and you go to contact up here, and then you click this link here, you'll get to this list. So again, I don't know any of these people. I have no relationship with any of them. Never, to my knowledge, never met them, I don't think. 
But I want to just walk through one. So I before the show, I actually picked this one. Again, I don't know Sean. We clicked that link. There he is. There's Sean. Um, and I go to his services. One thing you can tell is, do they make their fees readily apparent? If they don't, that's a big red flag. But you can see here, financial planning is 320 per hour. Taxes, 320 per hour. Retirement, 320 per hour. He can help you if you have a big inheritance. He's $320 an hour, which I think is eminently reasonable. Um, certainly better than, you know, well, night and day better than like 1% assets under management. Now, whether he actually manages your investments for you, I don't know. You would have to talk to him and figure that out if that makes sense. So there would be one example. Um, if we go back to the page, I don't know. Let's see here. Serves self-motivated do-it-yourself investors. That may not be what you want. Serves travel-loving young families. I don't know. Uh, that's interesting. I, I don't know. If you hate travel, maybe he's not for you. I'm not sure. Gen Z. Well, I'm... Um, and millennial crypto investors, that's definitely not for me. <laughs> I'm uh, mission-driven couples, okay. Financial planning for good, I don't know. So this is how I work through it, planning fees for individuals. Oh, here we go. So this is what I like, you know, it's an hourly fee or um, I guess hourly here and then monthly. So in, in any event, um, that this list may be helpful to you. I also kind of, I, I, again, asset builders has always been interesting to me. I don't know a thing about them. They're located in Plano, Texas, right here. Um, but their fees, they are assets under management, but their fees range from a high of 45 basis points to a low of 20. They say they're, depending on, I guess, account size, their average fee is 35 basis points, uh, which is very reasonable. I know they do manage investments. And here's the thing about, you not only have to understand the fees they're going to charge you, but you also have to understand how they're going to invest your money. Because what you can end up with is someone that charges what I consider high fees, but maybe not outrageous. So let's say 75 basis points. But then they put you in all actively managed funds and they take your $300,000 portfolio and put it in 22 different ETFs. And it's just, you, you know, that's just insanity. Um, I'm pretty sure this company is sort of uh, index fund focused, but you know, you have to do your own research. Oh, here's our investment strategy. Ah, we invest in index funds. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've looked at their um, site, but that's what I remembered. So there you go. Anyway, lots of lots of information there. So Ken, hopefully one of those resources will be helpful. And there's always Mark Zorrell. He's at Plan Vision, who I've talked about in the past. Okay. So Justin says, I have about 30%, I guess, of his money in a few companies. Should I sell the individual stocks and just go uh, to all index funds? And then he mentions the rest of his portfolio. And some of those um, I recognize. FSKAX, isn't that their, their total market? So it's interesting to me, Justin, because we, we co I covered this in my video yesterday when I was looking at a portfolio. You own both um, this fund, Fidelity Total Market, but you also own VOO, which is S&P 500. I'm just curious why. 
Like, why not just put all your U.S. stock investments in the total market? Or I suppose VU, if you if you prefer. But in any event, um, well, the first question about selling individual stocks it would be what what are the tax ramifications? But let's ignore that for a moment. Um, Thirty percent is a lot. Now that's um, that's the boat I'm in. Uh, but again, thirty percent for you may look very differently different than thirty percent to me. Depends on where you are in your your life cycle. What how much you have to spend each year um, in those funds. I mean, you know, it may be that I never spend the individual stocks. So, you know, I don't know yet. Um, but but if you ignore taxes, there's no question that the simple approach is all index funds and as few as possible, as few as you're comfortable with. Um, and, and you're likely to do more better doing that. For, I mean, not you specifically, but just people in general and myself included. My individual stocks have outperformed what I would have done in index funds, uh, largely because of Apple, but now the banks over the last year. Uh, but I would be the first to say that that, a large part of that is luck and it could change. Uh, if I could sell all of my individual, well, if I could sell without taxes, I would probably re reduce my, my stocks. Um, and I still might, um, but they have been good. It's not, I, I you know, I, I still like the companies I invest in or I, I would sell them if I thought they, you know, had run into trouble or something. But, but at the end of the day, Justin, you just got to make the right decision for you. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can do it gradually, maybe. Um, again, it depends on taxes. That's going to be a big part of it. Mike, who's the crazy man in the pink uh, wig, glad you like trillions. I haven't, I've skimmed it, but I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to it. That's not true. I've read the first chapter or two. I thought it was very well written, what I've read so far. Um, and then skimmed the rest of it. Yeah, it's a good book. Harold says, what is your opinion regarding I-bonds versus Vanguard total bond market? What is better to keep long-term? Well, that's a great question. Um, and there's, there's some practical considerations. So first of all, you can only buy I-bonds directly from Treasury Direct, 10000 a year, another, another 5000 if you use tax refund money. So you're limited you know, how much you can buy. And so for, for that reason, using I-bonds as part of your asset allocation is not, um, not all that simple. Uh, it can be a real pain. So uh, if I didn't know anything else, I'd probably say, well, just do a total bond market for your, your, your asset allocation. Um, but there are also two very different kinds of bonds, right? A total bond market fund like a B&D is what would be called nominal bonds, meaning they're not adjusted for inflation. Uh, you know, you, you, you buy a bond, it's paying whatever, 1%, that's what you get. It doesn't matter what happens to inflation. With I-bonds, as you know, when we have inflation like we have now, the interest rate gets adjusted. With TIPS, um, the interest rate stays the same and the principal value of the bond goes up with inflation or down if we have deflation. Um, and so... Um, to me, the for asset allocation purposes, it's probably better to say, well, should I do a total bond market or tips, in my view? And there, I like I really like the idea of 50-50 of each. 
because you don't know, we don't know which way inflation is going to go. We think we do. Everyone has an opinion, but we don't know. Uh, now I own some I-bonds and I, you know, even, even my I-bonds, I was debating this morning because I'll, I'll show you this and I'm doing it, going to do a video on this, but this is the blue binder. This is the, 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 the binder that contains the information on our investments. Should I get hit by a truck so that my wife knows what, what God awful decisions I've made with our money. Um, and when I'm doing that, it's like I was in it, I'm, I got it, okay, got this statement, got that, I got it all done, good. And I've printed out the table of contents and I look at it, I'm like, crap, forgot the I-bonds. <sighs> so now I got to print off something from Treasury Direct and change the table of contents. And, and it kind of reminded me, you know, are I-bonds worth the hassle? I don't know, though. It's hard to turn down 7%. But in any event, <laughs> uh, sometimes I forget you guys are even here and I'm just kind of talking to myself. Uh, I think for asset allocation, it's just easier to think, you know, that maybe total bonds versus tips because tips, you know, are sold, bought and sold in secondary markets. So they're in, in ETFs and mutual funds. And I kind of like maybe a little bit of both 50, 50 or whatever. Um, I, you know, I own I bonds, just put some cash in there. It's not really an asset allocation thing. I mean, I, I include it in our overall asset allocation, but it's really more just a place to park some cash at 7%. 7.12, I think. So, by the way, I had a comment. People sometimes leave me angry comments on YouTube. I know it's shocking. Um, but one person, he seemed upset with me, but he was trying to, he's, he wanted to know how in the world tips could ever be a good deal if they have negative interest rates, because aren't you always losing money? And I, and I tried to explain the, the, the interest rate on tips right now is not negative. It's the yield. It's negative. And that's a big difference. And I know it's confusing. So let's just use a hypothetical. Let's imagine for a $100 tip, Treasury Inflation Protected Security that, that will mature 10 years from now. It's paying point, I think, actually, I think it's one eighth of a percent, but let's just say it's paying 0.25%. That's positive, right? Well, when that bond goes to auction, it's not going to sell for $100. In fact, Tips today are selling at 100 bucks, or probably selling at about 115. The interest rate is still 25 basis points. That hasn't changed. And, and when the government calculates the interest you're going to get, they calculated using the interest rate and the, the face value of the bond, $100. They don't use what you paid for it. So the way you figure out the yield is to take the interest rate and you divide it using what you paid, the price. And since the price was, is higher, Right? That, when prices go up, yields go down. So the yield goes down. But what the government, the interest rate the government is actually paying is still the 25 basis points. And you might say, okay, you're telling me though that people are buying tips, $100 tips for $115. That's like the dumbest thing ever, right? Well, the reason they're willing to pay that is because of the, insurance, uh, the inflation protection that comes along with tips, which regular treasuries don't have. Regular treasury is going to trade around 100 bucks maybe even a little less, in which case you'll be a little higher. Uh, but what happens with a tip is that $100 will get adjusted for inflation. So if we have inflation, that $100 could go up. And when it does, so it goes up to 105, that 25 basis points gets multiplied against the 105. Then it goes up again to 110 the next time it resets. It gets 110, 115, 120. You go 10 years, 
depends what inflation is. But what you get back at the end of that 10 years is whatever that number ended up being. Could be 200 bucks. I don't know. Now it can go down. I think the way tips work, and again, someone in the chat will correct me. They can go down with deflation and they can even go below $100. But at the end of 10 years, you'll always get at least your $100 back. Even if we had deflation for the next 10 years and it kept going down and down and down to, to five bucks. So your 25 basis points on your last interest payment was multiplied against $5. When they actually matured and they paid you back, I'm pretty sure you get your 100 I think that's how it works. What do I know? Um, hey, Rob, should VTEB be used in a taxable instead of BND? I think what disturbs me is I actually understand that question. Um, well, so VTEB is Vanguard's, one of Vanguard's muni funds, tax-exempt funds. We can look it up. And it's probably the fund I'm going to invest in, not that that makes it a good one. Uh, let me show you. We'll put it, yeah, we'll look at it on Vanguard. So here it is. You have Vanguard tax exempt. So this is the ETF. They have, as you can see, they have a mutual fund version, which we can look at over here. Basically the same. The ETF is probably a tad cheaper. That's what, nine basis points. This one's six, whatever. Um, so this is really good, particularly you know, in a taxable. You would never own a muni fund in a retirement account. Because the, the deal with muni funds, you can they're not unlike, in a way, conceptually, they're not unlike tips, right? Because with a tip, you're paying that extra money, meaning you're getting a lower yield in exchange for the inflation protection, right? Well, with a municipal bond, you're, you're sacrificing a little bit of yield because it's not taxed at the federal level and you get the tax break. So your after-tax return, you know, hopefully is at least as much or if not more than a, a, a traditional bond. But of course, you don't, that tax break doesn't do you any good in a retirement account. So you want to hold these, in a, if you hold them at all, in a taxable account. And I think these make sense depending on your, um, you know, your tax bracket. If I were in, in the 10% tax bracket, I'm not sure this would necessarily be the right investment. Um, but, you know, in a higher tax bracket, I think, yeah, these make a lot of sense. So that's my take on that question, Quincy. And BND, you know, I think it's just a Vanguard total bond market um, fund. VJ, welcome to the chat. All right, I'm parched. Hang on. Chris asks, how do I reallocate my 100% equities to a more balanced three-bucket portfolio, maybe three-fund portfolio, maybe? without paying big tax consequences in my taxable account. Well, Chris, if I had the answer to that, I don't know. I mean, if you've got a lot of unrealized gains, you may not be able to. You could do it slowly, but even that might not change the outcome. Of course, who knows where capital gains tax rates are going to go this year? I don't know. Um, I don't have an easy answer for that. Sorry. I mean, you know, you certainly could use interest in dividends and new contributions to slowly to do it slowly, right? But yeah, if you've got, I mean, I have this issue, um, not specifically yours, but I mean, this idea that in taxable accounts, if you wanna rebalance or move to a different investment style uh, or approach, and you have unrealized gains or tax consequences, that's why you've gotta be very, very careful, particularly if you're investing a lump sum, uh, you know, a large amount of money at one time, again, large relative to whatever, you know, wherever you are, 
you know, once you start to build up gains in that, you kind of get locked in. I mean, again, not literally, you can always sell and pay the taxes, but what, so I made two mistakes uh, a few years ago when I invested some money in a taxable account. The first was I put all of our U.S. stock allocation in a taxable account, which from a tax efficiency perspective is reasonable. That's why I did it. Um, you know, I'm using Vanguard funds, so there are no capital gains and it you know, has dividends, but not much. And they're qualified. Uh, but now that I want to reallocate, uh, I can't. I, I can't without you know, triggering taxes. So one of the things I'm thinking about, I've always tilted my portfolio a little bit towards emerging markets, small cap or small cap value and REITs. Of those, probably the REITs are the least important to me. If I had to get rid of one of those three tilts, I'd get rid of REITs. Uh, and so, and the REITs, of course, are in a retirement account, as they should be. So part of, part of my thing, and, and that REIT piece is part of my overall equity allocation and U.S. equity. So part of my thinking is I might convert the REITs just to U.S. equity, which, of course, is all in my retirement account. And then that would allow me to have some amount of money allocated to U.S. stocks that's in a retirement account that can be sold and reallocated to bonds or whatever without tax consequences. I've actually thought about that. The other mistake I made, I don't know that I would have done anything differently, but it was something I didn't know. Um, I bought uh, in my taxable accounts an international fund. And with international funds, uh, and I don't know how you figure this out ahead of time. There's got to be a way. But a lot, some of their dividends are not qualified. So you pay ordinary income tax. Um, again, I don't know that I would have done anything differently, but... I would have liked to have known that. I did, it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, what are you going to do? So Jay says, hey, Rob, thanks for sharing your knowledge as always. Rate my portfolio. I watched your Ray Dalio all-weather analysis. What do you think about using it but skewing towards growth? I'm just not really a big fan of that portfolio. You know, I don't like its, its heavy... Emphasis on gold and commodities and long-term bonds. Um, you know, I've read a number of his, uh, well, one or two of his books. And I'll, I'll just be honest. I'm gonna, don't tell anyone. He, he doesn't really resonate with me. I don't know what it is. He's obviously a smart guy. Um, anyway. I'm not, I, I just, the all weather portfolio just doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't, it's not consistent with my own philosophy and thinking about investing. Like, oh, this is from VJ, liked your, <coughs> excuse me, latest video on how to evaluate your portfolio. How do you select funds that, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I'm parched. How do you select funds that behave in exactly opposite direction? Correlation tool and portfolio visualizer was excellent. I don't really think of it that way. And, 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 and it's funny, after, I really liked the video I published yesterday. Sometimes I really like a video and sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I like that video, but I think the whole asset correlation thing may, I mean, it, it can be useful, but I think it can be confusing. 
And let me show you what I mean. So go to Portfolio Visualizer. We're in Asset Correlations. So let's take a BTI and a BND, right? So bonds and stocks. So what do you think the correlation is going to be? It should be near zero, right? I mean, close, maybe. Yeah, 0.05. So not much correlation. <clears throat> and that's, that's a good thing, right? Um, now, having said that, if we want to tilt our portfolio, so let's say we want to tilt towards emerging markets for a moment. So what would that fund be? That would be, well, VMAX. I don't know what the ETF is, but I'm pretty sure that's the ticker for uh, the um, mutual fund. When I tilt towards emerging markets, I'm not thinking really about asset correlations. I mean, I, I know that these are not going to be correlated. And then they're not going to be zero, of course. I don't even know what this is. I'm going to, I'll guess. I'll say it's 70, 0.7. This is a guess. No, 78. The, the problem, and I, I kind of wish maybe I'd have, you know, the, the video yesterday was already 38 minutes, but it's not as if this, this, there's some magic number, okay? It's got to be less than 0.8 or, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really think about whether to add emerging markets. Well, you think about a total international fund already has emerging markets, but to add something even more with this, um, with this sort of analysis, it's not how I would think about it. Now, I would think, I suppose you could say, well, why VTI? Let's maybe we should compare it to VXUS, and that's probably a fair point, and it's much closer, right? So um, this is actually interesting. This is where it gets interesting to me because it says, well, all right, Rob, Mr. YouTube guy, uh, this is a total international stock fund that includes emerging markets. And let's just, again, for folks that are joining that, I don't know, are new to the channel. By the way, if you're new to the channel, I'd love for you to subscribe. I'm almost at 40,000 subscribers. I don't know what it is. My goal this year is to get to 100,000. So tell your friends. Um, so we can see that VXUS has emerging markets. We just put the ticker into um, Morningstar and, and select it. Go to portfolio. And this tells us it's a, it's a non-US equity fund. But what we want to see is come down here to exposure and click region. So here's Europe emerging, and here's Asia emerging, 14, 15%. But anyway, back to this, one could say, you know, yeah, there's some diversification. These don't move in lockstep, but boy, it's pretty close. Now, this is on a monthly annual. This is what annual looks like. It could be a little less. Yeah, 84. So there's some diversification benefits for adding uh, VMAX. Uh, but, you know, I think one can make a strong case for the simplicity of just owning VXUS, right? And the same could be, let's look at VTI and VUG. I don't know why I say it like that, but it just feels right. I think that's the right ticker. Yeah, they're pretty close. VUG is a growth fund. Now, um, we can come over here and look at it, but I think it's the right one. It's Vanguard Growth, right? Yeah. So, you know, you could say, well, let's get even more because VUG still owns probably, I don't know how many um, stocks it owns. We could get more concentrated, but I want to look. It owns 270 companies. 
and it's and this tells you where the growth is, right? It's, it's very large companies here. How does that compare to uh, QQQ? Take a look. About the same, so this probably won't change much. Yeah. So, but even here, I wouldn't look at this, uh, you know, I, I use this as one data point, you know, but, you know, I, I still think if someone says, well, like, I really believe in technology and growth companies, I want to put 10% in QQQ, I wouldn't respond, oh, you can't do that, the correlation's only 0.93. Um, at the same time, though, if I'm doing total U.S. market and VU and it's 0.99, I'm probably like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're getting by owning both of those other than just a second fund. Yeah. So that's my two cents. Worth every penny. Recently retired with a pension that covers almost all fixed expenses, about 80% equities. Too aggressive? I don't think so. Not, not in my opinion. That's displaced Hoosier. Vinyl says, when I analyze individual stocks, I look at the business model. Yeah, that's important. I mean, sometimes the business model is sort of obvious, but sometimes it's not. You know, if you look at Deere and Company uh, and you say, oh, yeah, I sell tractors. Well, yeah, they're also a financing company. And technology is a big part. You know, they're the self-driving tractor. I like Deere. I don't own any stock, any shares. But anyway, cash flow, yep, and quality management, all good points. I mean, sometimes depends also what you're looking at. But, you know, like with Apple, I don't really think about quality of management anymore. I guess I would if they changed management. What, this is from Quincy. What are your thoughts on the small value of, of, of Avantis, Avantis, Avantis ETFs? Use AVUV instead of VBR. Thanks. Hmm. I don't know. AVUV. Avantis U.S. small cap value. Here it is. That's interesting, the expense ratio. I guess, is this an index? Because sometimes with index funds that are in asset classes like this can be more expensive than, um, you know, what you might expect. Let me, uh, let me pull it up on their website for a second. Here it is. Oh, I'm an individual. Thank you for asking. So pursues the benefits associated with indexing, but with, but with the ability to add value by making investment decisions, decisions using information in current prices. That's interesting. I wonder how that works. Um, Year to date, 42%. I assume that, is that last year? I'm going to assume. One month. What benchmark are they using? 
Oh, the Russell 2000. Well, they've at least year to date, they crushed it. So, you know, they don't have much history, obviously, just one year. So it's kind of hard to, at least from a performance perspective, um, to make much of that. I'm curious how many companies they own. 672. It would kind of, I guess they probably have to. These are smaller companies. I don't know what the assets under management is. That's a lot of companies to beat the benchmark. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, um, and they haven't been around very long. That's the problem uh, with evaluating a fund like that. Um, I like small cap value, though. BJ says, your live streaming is popular with working folk, too. Are you able to change the time of this live event from Thursday to evening time or weekend? I don't know. I could, I, I could experiment. Or maybe I could do a week where I do it twice. I don't know. Maybe I'll try that. Rap Freak asks, have you seen any general recommendations on percentage of balance at retirement for traditional versus Roth. I know this is greatly impacted by balances as that drives the tax rates. No, I don't, and I don't think such a thing exists. I don't, I don't think having money in traditional, uh, some percentage in traditional and some in Roth at a certain age, it's gonna depend entirely on, on your, your tax situation, right? So. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that, is that and, and this is where I'll give you an, an example with a Roth conversion. I'll often hear uh, even financial advisors say that a Roth conversion is beneficial, particularly if you can keep the money in the Roth for a really long time. And the, the, that's at best an, a half-truth or an incomplete truth. Um, uh, and because really Roth conversions, at least from a tax perspective, come down to uh, comparing what taxes you'll pay when you convert the money versus if you don't convert, what taxes you'll pay when um, you take the money out of, say, the traditional. And notice I, I say taxes you'll pay. It's a fancy word, but there's a lot of meaning to it. I'm not saying tax bracket. And the reason is... Uh, when you convert money or when you take it out uh, of a traditional and get taxed, that taxable income can influence other aspects of your tax situation, like IRMA for Medicare. Um, it can affect uh, how much of your Social Security is taxed if you're, if you're at that age. Um, it could affect, uh, let's say, that, say you do a conversion when you're 55. And that increases your income, of course, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I no longer qualify for Affordable Care Act subsidies. Whoops, right? Um, you know, it can affect if you're looking to do tax gain harvesting, where you can benefit from 0% capital gains tax rate. So there's all these, you know, you've got to keep in mind uh, that there can be all of these follow-on effects whenever you generate income in a given year. But in any event, putting all that aside, and if we assume you're going to take money out of the, con the converted proceeds to pay the tax, let's just assume that for a minute, uh, then it all comes down to the taxes you'll pay at conversion versus the taxes you, you would have paid had you not converted and you took the money out at some point in the future. Uh, and uh, that's it. 
right? And if you can pay less in taxes on the conversion, you do that. And if you can pay less taxes by waiting and taking it out at retirement, you do that. And it doesn't matter how long you hold it. And you can just do the math. You know, if you start with a $10,000 traditional, and if you're going to convert it, let's assume 25% in taxes. So if you convert, that leaves you 7,500 in a Roth. And we'll assume you're over 59 and a half, so you don't pay a 10% penalty uh, when you take that 2,500 out to pay your taxes. So you've either got 10,000 in a traditional or 7,500 in a Roth. Now we can move forward. Let's just move forward one year. And let's assume the account balances haven't changed. The market was flat and you take your traditional out. 25%, you've got 7,500. Same thing you've got in your Roth. Or we could fast forward 10 years and say they double. So your traditional is 20, your Roth is 15. You take out your, your traditional, you pay 25% in tax. What are you left with? 15. It's the same. And so this kind of answers your question, I think, rap freak. It, it, <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard to say that with a straight face. Uh, uh, <laughs> because it really comes out of your tax situation. If you've been in the low tax brackets and you've been doing Roth all, 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 all the time, you may not have any traditional. If you're in the highest tax brackets, you may want the tax write-off and you might be doing only traditional. Um, by the way, if you pay the tax on the conversion out of, say, some other fund, taxable account, it, the question still comes down to taxes now versus taxes later. Although there, the length of time you hold it in the Roth can under can will have a, a benefit such that in theory you could actually pay a little bit more in taxes at the conversion and if you hold the Roth long enough it would still be worth it there's actually a paper on this that actually a viewer sent me and I started building a little calculator um I don't know if I can find it I, mean, I can find it but Oh, is it a morning star? Maybe it's a morning star. I'm not going to be able to find it. I'll see if I can dig it up. I know it's, I've got it somewhere, but I don't think I'm going to be able to find it quickly. I think it was morning star, but I don't know, maybe it was Vanguard. So Mike asks, for your value bank stock play, what would your exit strategy be? I don't really have an exit strategy. In an ideal world, I'll never sell them. That's my approach. Hmm, this is an interesting one. Charles. Would you be interested in making a video discussing your experience at the PCAOB in more detail? I'm sure many would find it very dry. <laughs> I don't think I'll take that personally. Uh, but if there's if but if there are other um, um, big four auditors uh, in the audience, I'm sure we would find some great interest in your stories and experience. Um, I guess I, I just it's it's kind of not really what the channel's about. Like, you're, but you're right, I'd probably get like seven views, but the seven people might really find it interesting. I don't know. Um, but happy to address any specific questions you have, Charles. I used to go to auditing firms and give them, I would do a presentation on things to avoid and you know, how to document. So in, in an audit, um, there are through all these auditing standards. 
And one of them is on documentation. It's, it's, it's AS3. Auditing, AS is the auditing standard. The PCOB, AS3, one of their first rules. Um, have they renumbered? Oh, they may have renumbered. Let's show you how old I am. Oh, no, I, whoops. Maybe they haven't. No, okay. Yeah, see, here's auditing standard three. Good, they haven't renumbered. Oh, wait, it's not current. The current version, it does not reflect any amendments. This is old. See, this is how old I am. The current version of the auditing standard can be found here. Oh, they renumbered. I think I do remember that they renumbered. They're always changing something. In any event, there are standards on how to document an audit and what, what, have to go into, what needs to go into your work papers. That's what they call the documentation of an audit, work papers. Um, I don't even remember where this was going. Oh, yeah, I used to go uh, to firms and could talk about those sorts of things. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an auditor. Um, so, but but um, I don't know. I have to think of what I'd say. I'm not sure what I'd say. Charles, if you have any suggestions, I'd definitely love to hear them. Or if you have specific questions. Uh, Neil says, did you see where Nancy Pelosi beat the S&P? She's quite the investor with her husband with call options. Yeah, apparently they're big into call options. Well, good for her. It is interesting, this whole thing, should our, our, our representatives and, I guess, senators be allowed to buy individual stocks? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, even if they're not doing anything wrong, and I don't have any reason to believe she is, uh, it goes back to auditing, actually, the ethics behind auditing. You have to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Can you, uh, double dog, can you talk about the way Vanguard computes rates of return when dividends are reinvested? I don't, I actually don't know if, if how they do that, if there's any particular way. Um, I mean, there's the whole timing issue, right? So that, that's why calculating your, your returns can be tricky. Um, I don't know if with Vanguard, I, I know, for example, Schwab will, will, will factor in timing on its calculation of your returns, but only for funds held at Schwab, not for anything you connect to external sources. I don't know about Vanguard. Mike, he answers my question about Social Security. So I was right, 8% every year after, after full retirement age and closer to 7% from the age of 62. Nice, appreciate it. So I guess I was half right. Maybe less than half right. I was a third right. That's wrong. I think a third right is wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, Michael. I logged on to thank you for doing a good job with this channel. We all appreciate your efforts regards from Jupiter, Florida. You're welcome. I don't know why, but Jupiter, Florida reminded me of Tiger Woods. Uh, did you see the, the, the tournament? I think Daly's and he, his son won it, but, you know, the father-son thing. I mean, Tiger's son, I mean, they just look like, <laughs> it's like identical. Their man mannerisms, I mean, that, that kid's going to be a serious golfer. He already is. What am I talking about? So is Daly's son. Of course, I guess you kind of maybe expect that. I don't know. Okay. Hmm. VJ, I have a taxable account where I invest small amount every week. 
I have two funds, VDADX and VTSAX. Are they redundant? Should I consolidate? Well, VTSAX is Vanguard's total stock market, U.S. stock market. Um, I know I know VDADX, but I just can't remember. Oh, it's dividend appreciation. Well, they're not, I, I, I don't know that I would use the word redundant. Um, but uh, this is actually, this may have been one that came up in yesterday's video. I just can't quite remember. Uh, so because it's a dividend fund, it tends to tilt towards value, which is normal. But it's not deep value, which reminds me of Kathy Wood and her ARC fund, which is, <laughs> which is not deep value either, by the way, but she thinks it is. Um, I, poor Kathy Wood. I don't know. She's having a tough year. I don't know why. I had to throw her under the bus. Um, and who knows? Her fund could turn it around. It's, the funny thing is, you know, if you're going to invest in a fund, I don't, not, I don't invest in ARC and it's not my approach, but the, one of the worst times to invest is when a fund has just gone, done gangbusters. And one of the best times is when it's, its last year or so has been terrible. In any event, so um, if you look at like, if we compare this, let me pull up another Morningstar screen to put um, VTS AX in. Uh, and we look at the portfolios of each. So this is going to be a blend, probably leaning towards growth. And the reason it just growth is just outperformed. So here's here's the total stock market. And both funds have roughly, uh, you know, they're both in the blend. Obviously, total market's over here. This fund's here. Uh, but in terms of company size, um, pretty much very similar. The one difference will probably be in weight. Yeah, so this fund has very little in small cap, some in mid and the rest in large. This probably has a little more in small. Yeah. So, you know, a little more distribution towards small, not huge. Um, if we look at market cap, average market cap is 128. This one should be similar. 133. Um, PE for this should be lower. This, this being, the, and this one is 20. So not, not a big difference, actually. Um, if, you went, if you went and looked at... Uh, the top holdings, this is going to be uh, I, really, I almost assume identical to an S&P 500, just the weights are a little different. Uh, and if we go to dividend appreciation, um, some overlap, but differences as well. So, you know, if you wanted to tilt your portfolio a little um, towards the value slash dividend side, owning both of these is not unreasonable, I suppose. I think um, I think some consideration might be given to Schwab's dividend equity fund. And I want to look at the portfolio. Yeah, see, this is tilted much more value. Now, again, that doesn't make it a better fund, it makes it a different fund. But if we're looking to get a little diversity from uh, a total stock market, um, but still as part of our overall sort of U.S., equity portfolio, I would probably personally, I can't say this is right for anyone else. I would probably, this would be at least high on my list of considerations. Um, PE is a lot lower. Again, doesn't mean it'll outperform just because it, you know, just because prices are lower doesn't mean they can't get, go down. Uh, um, and it's, it's portfolio looks different. So like if we went here, we went back to this tool, which I've basically told you 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's got a point. I used it yesterday, but we got to be careful. We can put in, I mean, VTI is the same thing, but we can do this and we can do um, VDADX. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, so these will probably be more correlated than, than VTSAX and the Schwab fund. So let's look. I, of course, I could be wrong. Actually, we can put them all in. Oops. So VTX, yeah, it's not, not a big difference. Well, this is, well, it's annual. Yeah, it's actually not, a, not as big a difference as I would have guessed. So the way you read this is, so this is, we want to see how correlated the other two funds are to the total stock market. So we just look here. So VDADX is 98, this is 96. But that's on an annual basis. This is probably going to change it, but still not a big change. So yeah, but I'd still, um, personally, if I wanted to add some value to my portfolio, I personally would probably consider something like this. That's just me. And I've been wrong before. Nicholas, thank you for all the great advice. If I invest in BRKB, which is Berkshire's B shares, which are trading at, I don't know, I own them. Are they $322? Wow, $322 a share. Do I need to still invest in Apple or any of the other holdings Berkshire carry, carries on its portfolio? I guess I don't really understand that question. You don't have to. No. I mean, you don't have to invest in anything. Um, I, I, maybe your question is, is it a good or bad idea? I don't mind overlap between my holdings in Berkshire. So I own Apple because I, I owned Apple before I owned Berkshire, I think. I certainly owned it before Berkshire owned it. Um, and so there's some overlap, but I'm okay with that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, you know, Apple is its largest holding. Um, so, you know, there's, there is some overlap with Apple. Um, I don't know. Maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I say I'm okay with it because Apple's just done well. And maybe I'm just fooling myself. Would you invest in a margin market mutual fund that has a 1% expense ratio just to give you, you exposure if it's the only option in your retirement plan? Well, how, in that, how can that possibly be the only option? This is from uh, Peter. How can that possibly be your only option? Um, I, I guess one question would be, does your employer match your contributions? But I don't know. That's a horrible option, at least from what I understand. But I don't know why that would be your only option. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that a retirement plan could even limit it to just that option. I don't even know if that would be would uh, comply with regulations. But I don't know. When considering retirement, should one must one be completely debt free, including no mortgage? This is from Scott. Uh, no. No, I mean, I think uh, in an ideal world, all other things being equal, you'd rather not have any debt. Um, but I don't think that's a requirement. Uh, I don't think it's a requirement for, for financial freedom. You just have to understand you've got this payment to make. And, um, you know, can you, you have to factor that into your, your, your monthly and annual expenses. 
Um, I would work towards being debt-free before retiring, but I don't know that I would work longer just to be debt-free. It just, it depends. There's a lot of different circumstances. You know, what percentage of your, of your investments are you spending in year one? You know, if someone said to me, boy, I, I got to spend 5% just to make ends meet, and I got this big mortgage, I would say, yeah, you probably want to work a little bit longer. I mean, assuming that you have that option. If someone said, well, I've got 2%, that's all I spend, and I've got this mortgage, but, you know, I don't really want to, you know, spend my cash right now, uh, but I can handle the payments easily. Yeah, that's fine, I would think. Final says, if you carefully analyze companies before buying and they go up a lot, then it isn't luck. Well, the reason I say that I think I've been lucky uh, is because... Maybe it's just I'm a scaredy cat. So I sort of dip my toe in and slowly, and then, then it, yeah, it ends up being more than I'd planned. But, you know, I've been, in, think about it. I've been investing since 2013. All right. So let's, let's look at, um, we can do this in portfolio visualizer. We'll go to uh, portfolio. And we'll just put in, we'll just put in VTI stock market just to get a sort of a, a frame of reference. 2013, I think the market was down. Um, no, that was up big. Uh, so, so I've been investing since this year. Now, I think I had some investments back in here that I either, I think maybe gave to charity. I don't remember. But what I have today is from here. So look at, look at, at when, when I've been investing. And yeah, I can say that, you know, Apple, because of Apple, I've outperformed the S&P 500, but still, I mean, one, two, three, six, not, you know, in, in, in seven out of nine years, the market has been up. And look at this, four out of nine years, it's been up by more than 20%. Um, I, you know, I, I need to get more time under my belt and, 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 and in some really bad markets, and then we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how I do. That's what I kind of mean by that. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have been a bad investor in the last decade or so. Um, let's see. Today's bond market. Today's bond market is confusing. And it, with the increase in interest rates, will affect will have an opposite effect to bonds. When rates go up, bond, bond values go down. Is this a good time to begin investing in bonds, considering that the rates will go up? Well, so we we can ask that question about stocks, right? I mean, stocks are expensive. Is this a good time to be investing in stocks? Won't their values go down? They probably will. Um, Prices of bonds and stocks are both high. They will go down. We don't know when. I think, you know, as we see monetary and fiscal policy start maybe to normalize, I, I think we'll see things go down. Eventually we will. We know that. Um, and so I think part of that decision, for, for me, the decision is what kind of investor am I? And what, what do I think is going to work for me? And so mine is just I'm going to do my best to stick to whatever the plan is I have, which for me includes bonds. 
Um, and uh, I know that they could go down, but of course over time, they may go down in value when rates go up, but over time I'll get more and higher yields, right? Uh, and eventually I'll make that money up. Uh, you know, stock prices will go down, right? And, but, but at the same time, particularly folks younger than I am, if you're investing in the market each month, you're gonna be buying at cheaper and cheaper prices. I mean, if you're in your 20s, 30s or 40s, you, you hope the market crashes. The last thing you want is for the market to keep going up like it is now because you're just paying a lot of money each time you invest in your 401k or an IRA. So uh, I get your point. I probably personally avoid long bonds, but I avoid them anyway. I just generally, I pick intermediate. It just works for me. Um, I know that's not a particularly satisfying answer. Oh, well. Uh, Michael, you stated in a recent YouTube video that you play craps. Yeah, when I go to Vegas, which is like once every five or 10 years. Um, my game has been blackjack, and I've, I like blackjack too. Although I personally rolled seven consecutive passes over an hour on the last night of a Norwegian uh, 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 gateway cruise. I bet that table was, that was kind of been a fun table. That's the thing about craps. It's like a, it's like a group, you know, it's a team, it's a team event. You always, you know, you go into a casino and there's always one table and they're just going crazy. And you walk over there and watch and smile. Um, Scott says, advising my 25-year-old uh, son on investments. Currently, he has a Roth IRA, 80% in SCHD. We just looked at that. That's the Schwab dividend sort of value fund. And 20% in BIV, which I know what that is, but bear with me. I can't remember. Oh, intermediate, Vanguard intermediate term bond fund uh, thoughts. I think that's perfectly reasonable, 80-20. When I was 25, I was 90-10. Some would argue you should be 100% at that age. I can't say that 80-20 is outside the, the, the range of reasonableness. Um, I think if I, if I were, and I am investing, I'm helping our children. I actually put their money in a target date retirement fund, but it's, which is 90-10. That's what I did. Again, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to accomplish the same thing. Well, Michael asked a question that I'm not sure I understand. In, the, in that vein, do you care to elaborate on your gaming? And if you would talk about active, relative, low-dollar, daily stock picking, for fun, for us qualified investors born in the 60s. Cheers. Well, gaming. I'm not sure why I play chess. I don't know. I'm not sure that's what he meant. I do have a gaming PC and in theory play Call of Duty. I wanted to play one night with, with our son, but he informed me that I, I need to get better. <laughs> that I wouldn't enjoy playing with his crew. So I don't, <laughs> that probably means I'm never going to play. So I said to him, well, you need to get better at chess. There. He didn't seem to care about that. Um, all right. Actually, I didn't say that to him. And by the way, no one, none of my family watches this. 
I asked my wife the other day, I said, have you watched a single YouTube video I've made? She was like, no, it's okay. Active relative low dollar daily stock picking. So you mean like day trading? I don't have any problem day trading for fun. I don't do it. I would keep it very small, like you going to Vegas. There's been days when I've thought about that day trading could be fun with some small amount of money, but it's like, that's a whole nother thing for me to learn. I don't, I don't have time for that. Vinyl says there was an article in Forbes. I remember this article suggesting many people will forget their I bonds and their, and their heirs won't have a clue. Yeah. That's why I got to put it. I got to put it in my blue binder. Honestly, it is a significant enough issue that I, that I wonder if, when, when rates generally start to normalize and I-bonds aren't so far above what everything else is paying, if I'll just pull it all out. It's just because of the hassle factor. Here's a good one from Ram. What software tools are you currently using for note-taking and mind mapping? Well, so I've used a number of tools. Um, And I will show you a couple of them. I'm pulling them up. And here's the thing you need to understand about. So conceptually, there are two kinds of note-taking apps. There are those that have proprietary databases. So they take your data into their database and you know you can back it up, but you know, without their tools, it's hard to do much with that database. Uh, and then there are tools that don't. They, you, all your files are saved on your computer in a file structure, just like you normally would. Um, and you, they usually use mark, mark, Markdown, I think. I've got that right, files. Uh, so you could open them up with any application. And there are note-taking tools that sort of sit on top of that, whatever folder you designate, say, this is where I want all my files to go. And so you could, you know, if that tool goes away, you still have access to your files. And, and there are multiple tools that you could use on that same folder. So, um, and there are advantages and disadvantages. The ones that I've kind of come to that I use would be this one, which doesn't look like much at the moment, but this is Obsidian. And this is one that you know it just sits there on top of a file structure. So I've got Roth IRA conversions, and I, I don't I don't have much put in there yet of any interest. But the reason that that's the case um, is the the tool I've actually been using the most is this one, which is called the Brain, which I love. This is just a cool tool. Um, so this is a book I read, The Last Founding Father. You can add all these attachments. So this is an attachment just linking to the, the book. Um, and then I had, um, I have an, I created an event that tells me when I read it. I have a note. I just, I was taking some notes, just things that interest me, like during the American Revolutionary War, uh, Monroe established, um, future President Monroe established a, sort of an intelligence, intelligence network to pass messages. And it, and it worked to the tune of 100, 100 to 120 miles a day. But the, all these things over here are thoughts. Here's John Quincy Adams. This is the book I'm reading now. You can probably detect a pattern. And these are all the books I've read in 2022. And I have other books here. Now, I'm really just building all of this out. 
Um, and you can create a new thought. Like if I were going to read another book, I could put it right down here and attach things to it. So I really like the brain. It's pretty cool. Um, but that's one of where it's a proprietary database. And I guess if it went belly up, I'd be in trouble. There are many, many others. There's ROM Research, Log, Seek, um, um, countless note-taking tools. You just have to pick one. Bill says, can you give more details of what should be in your blue binder? I will do that. I'm going to do a video on this. But here's my blue binder. I kind of want, like, when, when, when I'm dead and someone opens this up, I kind of want something to pop up, like scare the crap out of them. In any event, um, sure. So my, 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 I have two goals with the blue binder. One is to make sure they know what we have and where it is. So I have, I have a net worth statement, very simple. It's like eight lines. I have retirement accounts broken out between traditional Roth, and I include HSAs in there. I have taxable broken out by cash and investments, um, our home, if you have any debts, you'll list those and that's it. But then I have behind that more detail and I um, list every financial account we have. I list who the beneficiary is and secondary beneficiary. And I do that honestly more for me to make sure I've at least designated the primary beneficiary on every account uh, or that my wife has. And then behind that, I have the, the, the most recent annual statement for every account. Uh, so I do that. I list all the key contacts. So our accountant, our um, uh, trust and estates attorney, um, if you have a financial advisor, uh, any, uh, anything other, any other important thing. I list any insurance. And, and here's one thing. And I, I learned this from administering my stepmother's estate a decade ago. You not only want to list what you have, you also want to list some things that you don't have that some folks reading this without you there, of course, might think you have. So for example, I put in here, we don't have any life insurance. So they're not like, well, I wonder if they had life insurance. Oh, you know, maybe I've missed it. We don't have any life insurance. I put it in there. We don't have any life insurance. Um, so key contacts. Oh, here's the other thing that I'm doing. And I haven't written this part yet, but I'm really excited about it. So, oh, I have, before I get to that, I do have sort of a, a like a two-pager on my investment philosophy um, and, and kind of how they might want to think about investing. And then, um, oh, and then the will, the wills, your copies of the wills and trusts and whatever end-of-life documents you have. So that's all in there. That's why it's, I mean, if it, were, if it didn't have that, it'd be pretty thin. Um, if you have like a life, if you do have life insurance, I'd put the, so a copy of the policy in there, maybe. Um, yeah, you could also put where important documents are, you know, the deed to the house or something, but um, or where, where your original wills and trusts are, you know, just have a note. They're in the safe deposit box or whatever. The other thing I'm doing, and I haven't written it yet this year, but I'm starting this year is, you know how Warren Buffett uh, writes a letter to shareholders every year, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. This year we made a quadrillion dollars. And since present management, we've made a gazillion dollars. And but if you read his letters and. Let me just show you. They're very easy to find. It's going to go to the Berkshire Hathaway website. Here it is. Very fancy website. There it is. Um, BerkshireHathaway.com. And if you see uh, right here, Warren's 
Buffett's letters to shareholders, here they are. Here's the most recent one. And it follows the same format. This part right here is like, you know, almost the same every year. I'm going to start writing a letter uh, for now, you know, be to my wife. Not unlike what he writes. Mine won't be as long. And the numbers, you know, won't have as many commas. Um, but I'm going to say, okay, here was last year. Here's how much we made. Here's how much we spent. Here's how our investments performed. Um, and, but in it, I want to do something that, that Warren does. Because what he does, Warren, listen to me, Warren, Mr. Buffett, he educates the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. In some way, he, he, he passes on some nugget of investing wisdom. And I want to do the same thing, whether it's someday my wife, uh, well, every year my wife hopefully will read it. We'll see. Uh, but even eventually, not, not in real time, but eventually maybe my kids will, will read them. Uh, you know, I don't know what, but each year pick a topic, you know, why index funds are, are better than active management. Um, maybe one year it's on Roth versus traditional. I don't know. But pick some topic and, um, you know, spend a couple paragraphs. You know, maybe one year when there's a really bad market, it's down 40%. Talk about why it's so important not to change your investment philosophy. Um, because if you look at Berkshire's letters, I mean, what great wisdom you'll find. I mean, it, it really is worth reading. The, the website goes back to 1977. Um, so, you know, a lot of great wisdom. So that's my thinking for this year. And I'll write that here soon. Um, and just, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll keep the annual uh, letter in the binder. So over time, if I'm on this rock long enough, there, you know, there could be a, a lot of them. So that's basically what's in the blue binder and, and or what will be in the blue binder. By the way, if you're joining, remember, if you want me to cover a topic, please tag me in your comment or otherwise I won't see it. Aaron says, my kids who are about 10 have saved around a thousand each. They really don't need to touch it for a decade. Would it be better to invest in treasury bonds or into a low cost ETF? Well, for a 10 year time horizon, I probably wouldn't put it in treasury bonds um, personally. One thing you can look at for that kind of thing is, I think this is the one. Yeah, if you go to the Utah's 529 plan, so it's my529.org. This is for, I think this is for the state of Utah. Yeah. And you look at their, the way they invest, depending on how old. Um, let's see if I can find it quickly. Well, they have different approaches down here. Can't find the page, but they have like approaches to investing, like when you're 10 years out from college kind of thing. And I think that's, I don't know where I can find it now. Maybe this is it. Oh, I don't want to go through that. It's on that website somewhere. I've looked at it before on the show. Customized aged base. We're getting warmer here. But still not what I remember. Oops. But in the event, they can give you some tips. But 
know, it also depends what they're going to use it for. I mean, maybe for college or, you know, will they need it in 10 years? But I'd probably put it in some sort of um, personally, some sort of low cost index kind of fund. It could be a, a fund of funds, could be like a life strategy fund. Um, probably what I would do. Carson wants to know if I've done a video on any of the covered call ETFs. I've, uh, I've talked about them. I'm generally just not a fan of covered call ETFs. I know that they produce a lot of income, and so their yields can be 8 9%. I don't know. Let's look at one of them. QILD. Let's see what the yield is on this guy. Look at that, 10%. But um, when you look at their actual performance, their total return, um, generally, now I don't know about a, a, on the NASDAQ 100, maybe it's had a good run, I don't know. But generally, they, they don't, you know, particularly with the fees and everything else, they don't perform as well as just keeping it simple. So I don't really see a point of covered call ETFs, but there may be folks smarter than I am who have come up with a reason to own one of those things. MB, this is a good question. How robust is new retirements con uh, Roth conversion tool? Does it consider other uh, dividends, cap gains, et cetera? Bottom line, you think it's worth subscribing just for that fee? Well, I don't know that I would describe subscribe just for that feature. Um, there's two ways to use new retirement uh, with Roth conversions. And actually the tool I think is the second best way in some, in some respects. Let me, um, let, let me see if I can do this quickly. So this is a demo account that I have. Obviously I haven't even set it up, so I don't know, fine. Um, let's say yes. Okay, I'm just gonna, I wanna get, that's fine, fine. This is all data you would you would obviously fill in for your own self. Um, let's we'll just say fine. We'll say no. Fine, I own a home. I'm just going to finish this up quickly. So can I get out of that? So here's what I want to show you. So the first thing we need to do is go to accounts. So this just has a tax advantaged account at 200. So let's say, uh, let's make this, so this is, we'll make it, we'll make it 2 million. And you have to set your own returns and this actually is relevant to Roths. Um, they, they put us, uh, so that's the optimistic return. I never understood 5%, that's optimistic. That's what they, that's sort of what's pre-filled. I think for mine, I have nine and four, maybe that's too ag aggressive. Um, it's interesting. One thing you can do is you can change this at a certain age. And the theory behind that, I think, is that maybe once you get into retirement, you'll make your you'll, you'll change the investments to be a little more conservative. So you want to change the assumptions and that's fine. Um, now, so let's see, am I at two million? What did I do wrong? I think I have to change this back. That, we'll see why that's relevant in just a minute. So this is a traditional, all right? So we have no Roth. So then the question is, well, when do we want to do a Roth? Now, um, 
I have to remember, is this it? Retirement age. So, oh, that's fine. We'll leave this here. So this, this basically says, I'm going to live to be 89. Obviously, you can change this. But you, you have an estimate of your longevity when you want to retire, right? So this has just got it here. So the thing, let me see if this version of it lets me do... It's under Explorers. I know I'm moving through this quickly. Maybe we'll do a whole live chat just on this tool. I don't know. Let me know if you think that would be useful. Let me, so if we go to Roth Explorer, Roth Conversion Explorer, it uses a bunch of assumptions, and it, puts, it comes in and says, this is what we think you should convert and win. All right? And then projected account balances. But here's the thing. Part of... Part of this Roth conversion, and this is true, you know, and this is a valid point, is you're looking at RMDs, right? So if you have it, let's just assume you have everything in traditional, you know, once you hit 72, uh, you know, you're forced to take money out, uh, even if you don't need to spend it. And of course, that triggers taxes. And so part of the idea is to smooth those taxes, right? Um, but if we come over here, what's our assumption? We're assuming an average. So remember I put in there nine and four? So, so it's actually using the average between those two. So what's that? Six and a half, I think. But see the, see the, the blue bars here representing conversions? Let's assume optimistic. And it didn't change anything. Oh, no, there it goes. Just took a second. It changes the outcome. Now, in my personal account, what, when I go from average to optimistic, the changes are dramatic. And of course, of course, if you go to pessimistic, they change even more. Now you think now you say, well, well, why is that? Well, if we assume pessimistic returns, our traditional retirement account isn't going to grow as much. It's not going to be as big. And so our RMDs won't be as much, right? And if we assume optimistic, it's going to grow a lot and our RMDs are going to be a lot. And, and so then, then that leaves you with, so the point of all of that is anyone even listening? Are you guys watching? Are you out there? Okay. Um, the point, uh, I don't know what the point was. The point is that while I think this Roth conversion tool is, is useful, a lot of it comes down to assumptions, right? We're still assuming a bunch of stuff. And I don't know, is it going to be 9%, six and a half, four? I don't know. I have no idea what the returns are going to be. Um, so, but, but this is the conversion tool. I think it's useful. This, this shows you um, account balances over time, right? Obviously, your Roth goes up as you're doing more and more conversions. But one thing that I like that's not part of, not officially a Roth conversion tool, and I learned this, one of the things New Retirement does is they have like webinars and stuff. And um, Michelle Dash is one of their employees who I actually met years ago. She's terrific. Um, and she does a lot of these. She knows this tool, I mean, as far as I can tell, better than anyone. Uh, so let's go to, um, let's just go to overview. So we've just put in a bunch, I don't even know what data we've put in. They, they give you chances of success and stuff. But um, what I want to show you is, maybe it's taxes. We'll start there. So if you look at this, so we're looking at net taxable in income tax by federal tax bracket. So what's happening here is these are our working years, right? We're paying taxes. I don't know why it dips down. Uh, so I'm not sure why it dips down here. 
I'm trying to think what happens. But in any event, notice that it dips down here a lot and that it can be even more extreme depending on your specific circumstances. In some cases, almost down to zero. Why does that happen? Uh, uh, that happens a lot if you, between when you retire, so your income goes maybe to zero, right? Or way down. But before you start taking social security and before your, your RMDs uh, kick in. So for example, if we go back here and we go to assumptions, let me um, go to assumptions. I hope this is helpful to people in any event. Uh, I'm going to assume we retire earlier than 44. Let's retire, I don't know, in 40, May of 2040. Let's see if that changes stuff. Okay. And then we'll go back to taxes. Let's see. Maybe just change. didn't change it much. Let me refresh. Well, the point is, I guess the point I want to make, though, is you see these dips, right? So what you can do is you can model conversions to try to smooth this out a bit. So you're, you're not getting hit with the higher brackets up here and you're, you're filling in some of these lower brackets here. And so what you can do for that, how you can model that, I believe is cash flow or money flows. So on money flows, this is a really important part of the site. It says key info, but we can go to taxes, right? Estimated tax, if you see that same dip right here, it's the same thing, then it spikes up. This must be, I don't know why it spikes up then. I mean, because I, I, RMDs I think would occur sooner. But in any event, you can, um, you can set up Roth conversions. You can say, I want to do a conversion from the retirement account and the amount's going to be whatever, 100,000. I'm going to do it in 44. And you can sort of manually do this and see what the results would be. The thing you have to keep in mind, though, is that there's still, look, all these assumptions, right? I mean, there's a bunch of assumptions to make. And the reality is, if you save this, see, it popped up. And you could lower it. No, I don't want it to be that quite that high. Um, and try to fill in some of this. And of course, as you do this, taxes come down over here. Hope that makes sense. Um, this is interesting too, because this shows you by income tax bracket. So this person will, uh, you know, we just threw in a bunch of data, but this person will never be above the 25% according to the data. And of course, we haven't even talked about what if the tax brackets change, which we know they will, we just don't know how. So I was, I don't know. I don't know if that was helpful or not. Those are the two ways that I know of that you can use new retirement to sort of model Roth conversions. You do have to spend a lot of time, though, getting the data right. And depending on your circumstances, that can be easier or hard. Uh, for me, I've got this business. Well, I, you know, it's making X dollars now. I don't know how long that's going to last. What do I put in there? I can put in this year's income. Even I can even put in 2022 with at least some reasonable degree of conviction. But... Maybe you guys will all stop watching the YouTube channel. That would be sad. Okay, Chase, what time is it? All right. How would you determine how much to save in a taxable account if you plan to retire early at, say, age 55? 
Well, I've at least got something you can use. Part, part of that depends on how old you are. Because if you're 54 and a half, I'd save a truckload. But I'm going to guess that's not the case. This is an interesting tool. I think I may have shown this to you guys before. It's just networthify.com. And you put in your annual income. Right now, it's got 50. Your, your current annual savings. So how much of that 50 are you saving? They put in 30. That means you're spending 20 of it. And that means your savings rate is 60%. You can put in your total savings that you already have. So you got 100 grand. Um, and you can crunch the numbers. And this will tell you that based on some assumptions, you can retire in 9.3 years. Now, again, it's kind of like new retirement. There's assumptions. What are the assumptions? Your annual return on investments, 5%. I probably wouldn't change that actually for this personally, but your withdrawal rate's four. Now, if you're going to retire at 55, you said, I'd probably assume, maybe assume three. And it's 12.2. And it gives you a breakdown down here. Well, that might be useful to you. I hope it is. Again, you know, it's, we can make all the numbers look good depending on what we put in there. You just have to realize that reality doesn't check with net worthify or new retirement before it wallops you in the head. <laughs> ah. Okay. Alex, many developed market international funds do not have exposure to, to Canadian companies. I didn't know that. Is it a good idea to include it in a separate ETF? Well, I don't think it's a bad idea necessarily. I have a good friend who allocates almost at a country level. He probably has a Canadian ETF. I don't remember. To me, it's just too much work and no offense to our friends to the north. I love them. Some very funny people come from Canada. Uh, and, and I've heard some pretty good hockey players. I don't know. Uh, but I probably wouldn't complicate my portfolio to get exposure to Canada. It is curious to me, like, why wouldn't a VXUS, as an example, have exposure to Canada? What does Vanguard have against Canada? Let's find out. So here we are. This is the fund. We're going to go to, we got to go to country level. We go to region, but North America, that doesn't help us. Country. There's Canada. 7%. I don't know. I think we're good. Uh, Alchemist says, could you please help me understand why VBTLX is down 4.25% year over year? Sure. So that's the, this is the total bond market fund. It's um, BND, right? But this is the mutual fund version. Here it is. Um, and so if we look at performance, so last year it was down 167 year to date, and we're only on we were January 13th, it's down a buck 38, right? Uh, so I don't know if is that 425? I don't know. I mean it depends on where you measure it and all of that. So um, if we look at the portfolio. 
It's got an effective duration of 6.84, right? So let's look at the 10-year treasury yields. And I want to go to Fred. Where's Fred? Here it is. Here's Fred. So here's the, the yields on the 10-year treasury. I know that I know that um, this is not 10 years, but this is this tells us what we need to know. We go to one year. Um, so you know it's been on a ride. It went up, then it came down. But if you look about it a year ago, the yields were around one, we'll call it, right? Close enough. And now they're at 175 or thereabouts. At one point I thought they went above 180. So the point is, as compared to a year ago, you know, there's been ups and downs, obviously, but but rates have gone up, right? And when well, those are yields, but yeah. And so, you know, as as they go up, values of existing bonds go down. Now there there there's a silver lining. Um, as a bond fund buys and sells, and you know, sells some bonds and buys new ones that are have a higher yield, you'll eventually get the benefit of that higher yield. It just takes time. But yeah, uh, bond funds can go down in value. I mean, if we look, um, what's the Vanguard? I don't know what the ticker is for the Vanguard long-term bond fund. Vanguard long. Well, we'll just look at uh, long-term treasury. Oh, v, uh, XNAS. I don't even know what that means. It looks, reminds me of Christmas. So here it is, long-term treasury. It's got a portfolio. It's got a duration of 20, 17. How's it done? Not good, right? It's a bond fund down, down more because its duration is longer. Now, tips have done better, right? So you got half and half maybe. You know, you go on to tips, and then inflation isn't as high as people expected, and the treasuries, you know, nominal bonds do better. So I could split the difference, but does transfer, this is from Christopher, does transferring a rollover IRA from one company to the next count towards the one rollover per year limit? Well, so I believe... I've never done this whole um, rollover thing, the way that people try to game the system. I shouldn't say it that way, but you can do a direct transfer where you never touch the money, right? And then there's rollovers that come to you and you've got, what, 60 days, I think. I've never done it this way. Like, yeah, 60 days. Um, like, I'm doing a rollover right now with Capitalize, that company that I mentioned. Um, and it's worked out so far, it's smooth. And uh, they are sending me a check, but it's not made out to me. It's made out to brokerage firm, whatever. Each, each, each broker, you know, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever, you would, they'll tell you how to make the check out, you know. You know, so it's to them for your benefit kind of thing. And what, what Capitalize does, by the way, they're actually, uh, it's a free service, um, they're actually going to, so they walk me through the steps. They would even do a phone call, but I didn't need it. But they're even going to send me a self-addressed stamped envelope. So they never touch the money. Capitalize never sees the money. But when I get the check from my 401k provider, I'm going to get an envelope from Capitalize. I, 
if I got to put the check in the envelope, seal it and put it in the mail and then I'm done. And it goes right to where I'm transferring, rolling over my 401k. Um, anyway, I'm looking at this. So, you, you know, you've got these different kinds of rollovers. And then they've got the 60 day time period. You generally cannot make more than one rollover from the same IRA within a one year period. You also cannot make a rollover during this one year period from the IRA to which the distribution was rolled over. So I don't know if that answers your question, uh, Christopher, but that's from the IRS. And here's the, what you would Google, I think, to find it. Hopefully that helps. Double Dog works for a sister company of Deer. Nice. I like deer. It's just, it's just, I don't know. They're, 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 they're an old company. They farm, and they, but they're cool with technology. And the thing, you know, the one thing that people ask me about evaluating companies, one thing that's really important is what management does with the money they make. And the smart things would be some dividends. You know, I'm not a big, you know, pay me a lot of dividends kind of person. Some buybacks when it makes sense. Invest in your company in smart ways. Don't go out and make stupid acquisitions. Um, how do you manage your capital? And I think from what I've seen, I've not done a, a deep dive study on it recently, but Deer does a pretty good job. Do you think small cap stocks have been beaten down lately because of the hundreds of IPOs and SPACs that have hit the market in recent months? Well, Aaron, that's an interesting question. I've never sort of made that connection. Um, I, I still attribute a lot of what we see in the market, whether it's crypto, stocks, real estate, uh, to monetary and fiscal policy. I guess I should take that off the screen. That's what I see it as. And when, you've, when you're very accommodative, like we have been, I mean, more so than in my lifetime, it's not just low rates. It's the Fed buying billions in bonds and the federal government passing out checks. I mean, maybe for good reasons, but but regardless, um, it, it really fuels sort of the the high PE sort of growth kind of companies. Um, but it's an interesting question. I wouldn't think that would be the the reason, but I, I wouldn't see that connection. But I haven't really thought about it, so could be. Slow Joe says, as a new government employee, should I roll my old 401k into the TSP or into Vanguard? Well, that's a good question. I love the TSP, so I don't see that. I don't see that as a bad choice. Um, you know, you have to. You, we, one thing to understand is the differences you know, with a with a rollover IRA. You know, you can do things with it that you can't with a 401k, including the TSP. It may not matter to you, like education expenses and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've I did a video on this because, you know, with, with a 401k, there's also the age 55 rule may or may not matter to you, but wouldn't apply once you move it into an IRA. Um, but from a pure, just like investment options, I think the TSP is great. I love the simplicity. Rodolfo, thank you. Appreciate the kind words. Ram says that many of the Avantis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I guess I am. ETFs are in Paul Merriman's portfolios. It's good to know. 
number of people are telling me they're not, they're not, that Ray Dalio doesn't resonate with them either. Obviously, he's a very smart guy. I mean, his, his firm has done incredibly well. There's just something, maybe I'm just not smart enough. I don't know. There's just something wrong. I don't know what it is. It's probably me. T. Phillips says, anyone know why Portfolio Visualizer, or oh, the Monte Carlo analysis for TSAX does terrible when compared to FSKAX, which is Fidelity's total market? Hmm. Interesting. I have no idea why. It's almost one. I'll do a few more here. So Alice Sandro wants to know whether adding a little REIT diversity into a taxable account makes sense. I wouldn't do it. So the way REITs work, REIT, you know, if you think about uh, Apple. So Apple gets taxed at the corporate level, right? And then they pay dividends to shareholders and we get walloped again with tax. It's double taxation. Well, with REITs, they have a, a tax benefit where they don't get taxed at, at sort of the corporate level, but they have to jump through some hoops to qualify. And as I understand those hoops, they have to distribute 90% of their profit as income. I, I'm sure there's all kinds of exceptions and maybe the rule is more complicated than that, but conceptually that's, I think, accurate. And uh, we get, when we pay the tax, we generally pay it as, or, on, on, uh, it gets treated as ordinary income. So you end up generating a lot, you know, the distributions, you know, are, are high. Um, I'm going to see if I can pull up an example. Well, let's, let's look, uh, we'll look at, we'll look at a real estate, a Vanguard REIT. I don't know if this will show us what I'm wondering, what I'm looking for. <clears throat> yeah, see, that, that doesn't look terrible. $1 on 114. So I don't know. It's an ETF. But in, in any event, you would end up paying ordinary income on that, I'm pretty sure. Um, but still, that seems pretty low to me. I'll have to look into that more. But that's ge the general wisdom. You don't want to own REITs. For, that, for all those reasons, you don't want to own REITs in a, um, a taxable account. Carl, I'm invested in a globally diversified ETF. How do you deal with the fear of missing out of not investing in only the S&P 500? Well, you can play chess. I find chess to be a very distracting hobby. And I don't think about why my investment portfolio is not performing as well. No, I hear you. Um, you know, one approach is to put a little bit, you know, to tilt towards the S&P 500, 10%, if that's what you want to do. Um, the, the, the problem, it, it, what happens over time? I don't know how long you've been investing. Over time, you realize that this too shall change. It just will. Um, and so anyone, here's the reality. No matter how you invest, if you, if you, if you pick up an approach and stick to it, I don't care what the approach is, you will underperform at times. The great Warren Buffett has underperformed at times. If you've been a Berkshire Hathaway owner, 
you will have under have, have underperformed the market. In fact, uh, we can even look at his letters. In the early days, it's amazing when you look at his performance in the early days. Per share market value versus the S&P. Look at these early, this is 65. 49 versus 10. He lost three versus a losing 12. But like, here, look at this. S&P 500, 30.9. He was up 13.3. Now, the next year, he crushed it. <laughs> Although, look at this year. He lost 4.6. This is market value now. This is not, you know, he, he changed how he did these letters at one point. Lost 4.6 versus 3.9. I mean, it's just, it's just the nature of, it's just the way it works. Clayton says he's 34, he's a Canadian investor, has 90% VEQT. I don't know what that is. I'm guessing a Vanguard fund. Vanguard All Equity Portfolio. And 10% VAB, which is Vanguard, oh, Canadian aggregate bond. I'm debating with going 90% XEQT, which I assume is no Canadian. I don't know what XEQT is. In any event, instead, due, it, due to its lower home bias, okay? However, it has low emerging market exposure. Well, um, I don't know. If, can I look at that in Morningstar? If I can't, I'll try. Probably won't come up. No. Yeah, unfortunately, with iShares website, I, I'm... They don't make it easy to understand what this thing's investing in. Well, it's 24% Canadian. So I wonder what uh, VEQT is. I wish Vanguard or Morningstar had all of these. Well, you know, so I'm looking at it, uh, Clayton, and VQ, VEQT has 30% Canadian. And then it has 43% US, and then it's got 7% emerging. iShares has 24%. So, I, you know, it, 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 it does have less home bias, you're right, um, by 5%. You know, which one, though, is going to perform best over a number of years? I don't know. They don't seem dramatically different to me. I don't, I don't know how I give you any, any sort of useful commentary on that decision. Yeah, I can't think of what to say. I don't know that I would necessarily make my decision based on the emerging market exposure. 
That's a tough one. You know, I'm, I am interviewing Mark Zorrell um, on how to invest if you're living overseas. Now, I don't know that he'll be able to answer a question like that, but I'm interviewing him next week on the show. All right, I'll do, uh, I guess we're almost out of time. How am I doing? Man, maybe I should do this twice a week. Justin says, a friend of mine won't invest and just wants to work enough to pay off his mortgage. Any advice on convincing them why to invest and why just saving up cash isn't smart? It's tough. I'm trying to think if there's a book I would recommend. I can't think of one off the top of my head. You know, sometimes you might convince them to invest a little bit. Of course, you know, you do that, they put a little money in and the market drops by 30% and then they're done. That's a tough one. Uh, let me give that some thought. Maybe that's worth a video. Well, um, you guys have been great as always. Uh, I think I need to go rest. I hate to I always hate to leave the show with all these questions unanswered, but the reality is I could do this for, for probably six hours and there'd still be questions at the end. I will consider maybe doing a second um, show, not every week, but I don't know, once or twice a month, maybe on a weekend or maybe one evening, you know, sometime outside of work hours. Um, so if you subscribe to the channel, I think it'll alert you. Uh, when I do that, because it'll probably be without much notice, <laughs> maybe a couple hours. That's about it. Uh, but I will do that. I do appreciate all of you and your questions. They're great. Uh, they keep me on my toes. They, they Sometimes they show me how much I know, and sometimes they show me how much I don't know. <laughs> uh, but that's life. So um, I guess that's it. I always It's always awkward in this because, you know, I want to say, all right, have a good day. But there's no one saying anything back. Because, you know, you guys can't talk to me. So that's it. I'm out. Hey, hope you have a great week. Until next time, remember, the best thing money can buy is financial freedom. And if anyone knows where Salty is, I would like to know that too. Hope he's okay. See ya.